Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week I'm joined by Hallie Jackson. She's an MSNBC anchor and the chief White House correspondent for NBC News, and will be on air for the network's Election Day broadcast, Decision 2020, which kicks off next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern. I called up Hallie this week, days before the election, to discuss the state of the race, the mood inside the White House as polls show President Trump down to Joe Biden, what we should expect on Election Day, and what it's been like to cover this historically insane year in news. Hallie Jackson is chief White House correspondent for NBC News and an anchor on MSNBC. Hallie, welcome to the interview. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So your primary beat is the Trump White House, and I want to start there. Uh, The presidential election is next week. President Donald Trump, having recently recovered from the coronavirus, is on the campaign trail, delivering several rallies a day to packed crowds of supporters. Joe Biden, who has, let's say, taken a, a quieter approach to campaigning during a pandemic, still leads Trump in the polls that matter. Uh, He leads the president nationally and in most of the battleground states that are needed to win. Granted, we all remember what happened in 2016, but I'd say that the race is pretty solid for him right now. I'm curious, in light of all of that, what the mood is in the White House right now. Is there a sense that this could be it? So I think there's a sense that things are tight. I think there's an acknowledgement of that from the folks that I talk to and and the people who are close to the president in and around the campaign and the White House. One thing I hear a lot, Aiden, is references to the campaign that I covered four years ago for Donald Trump in 2016, uh, when the polls show him showed him rather, you know, underperforming. There was an expectation. I don't have to remind folks four years ago that Donald Trump was not going to pull out a victory, and he did. And so I think one of the things that I constantly hear about from folks is, well, Hallie, you remember what happened four years ago. We think we still have that sort of underdog status that we can still pull out a surprise victory. Just you wait and see. Now, that's kind of a little bit of the public bravado, although I do hear it privately as well. Uh, some discussions about internal polls in certain battleground states that are tighter than what the public polling shows. But you are correct in that in a lot of these battlegrounds and really important battlegrounds, too, with some new polling out this week on Michigan, for example, on Wisconsin, showing Biden with a pretty decent lead outside the margin of error over Donald Trump, um, there is an acknowledgement that, yeah, this is not an easy slam dunk by any means. I don't think there are a ton of people inside the Trump orbit who are writing off a victory, but I do think there's a sense of potentially bracing for some some news that isn't you know, all positive come election night, of course. And I think that that reflects just the reality that we're seeing on the ground. Um, when you get inside some of these poll numbers, which is what's interesting is the way that the president's pandemic response has really affected him in some of these battleground states. You look at a place like Wisconsin, right? Um, my colleague Lester Holt has been traveling all across the country for Nightly News, which is a, a program that I'm always contributing to. Um, and he was in Wisconsin this week. And I think one of the interesting things there is how much um, sort of the, the discomfort with the way that the administration has handled the pandemic is being reflected now politically as people are getting ready to cast their ballots, you know, uh, on Tuesday or frankly early with 72 million people having voted already so far. You mentioned the states that have been hit hard by the pandemic. I'm thinking of Wisconsin, which uh, does have Biden up in the polls right now. Do, do, Do you think that the Trump campaign has internal numbers that is leading them to focus on different states, maybe Florida or Georgia? Yeah. And one that keeps coming up and that has been coming up, I hear a little less about it now, but is, for example, Minnesota. They think that's a place they could have potentially done well. I think where the president is visiting this week is interesting. You know, he's focusing on 
Um, for example, Arizona, he had a couple of couple of stops, couple of rallies there that he's doing. That is a state that he won back in 2016, but that you know it's pretty dead heat ish with Biden with Joe Biden right now. Um, Biden has a slight edge, but it's not anything you know insurmountable. And so I think the president playing defense is going to be important. He's got to hold on to the states where he did well in 2016, and then he's got to expand that map a little bit too. And I think that's that's the challenge for the Trump campaign right now. Sure. And the election is next Tuesday. Uh, tens of millions of Americans have already voted, but there does seem to be a, a lot of anxiety around what's going to happen at polling places. Fear There seems to be a lot of fears of, of voter intimidation. Do you think that we have anything you know, surprising in store for election day, or do you think it's going to be a normal election next Tuesday? One thing that I hear, and it's interesting, I had a conversation with uh, Michigan Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin this week on my show Mm. on MSNBC, specifically related to some of the issues that have come up in Michigan uh, regarding, for example, open carry at polling places and whether or not that can happen. There has been some back and forth with, you know, state officials, with with judges in that state on, on what you can allow. All of it, of course, becoming a flashpoint, if you will, for some of these questions of voter intimidation and, and voter suppression. And one thing that I thought was interesting, um, and she's talked about this elsewhere too, is the idea that, you know, having some faith in these state secretaries of state, right? Some of the state officials and some of the clerks on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, who do believe, you know, wholeheartedly in the sanctity of the democratic process of actually going out and casting your ballot and doing that, you know, in a presidential election once every four years. So the, the thing that's great about the resources that we have at NBC News, so on election night, for example, Aiden, just to give you a sense, I will be fully immersed in, you know, Trump world on the, you know, with his campaign at their election night event, um, you know, focusing on that for NBC News, for MSNBC, for NBC News Now, for our digital team, uh, trying to feed all those different platforms. We have an entire team focused just on this other issue, right, of election security, voter intimidation, voter suppression, potential reports of that. So the great thing about a place like NBC is that we have an entire apparatus in place to help immediately track down any reports of that to help figure out, you know, what's what's legitimate, what's perhaps overblown, what officials are saying on the ground, what our reporters are saying on the ground. And um, I think that to me, like as a reporter who will be in the field on election night, right, to have mm-hmm. access to that is going to be hugely, hugely important um, as, as some of these things, you know, potentially pop up. Yeah, that's a really valuable reporting service, I feel. Now, you mentioned election night uh, for the Trump campaign. Uh, I read a a report this week that they're planning on hosting a a party at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., but that the president is is not as sort of bullish on hosting election night parties. Um, Is is that something that you're planning on attending? do Do you know if that's happening or... Well, I know I'll be in Washington on election night. At least that's the Mm -hmm. assumption right now. The campaign has sent out um, an email to supporters talking about this election night event at the Trump Hotel. I've actually reached out to um, our local officials here in Washington, uh, the mayor, for example, and some others, because what I find interesting, at least a part of this is, the president is allowed to hold events if he wants on the White House grounds. I flashed back mm. to the end of August and the Republican National Convention, which was on the South Lawn uh, in large part at the White House and in the Rose Garden. And there were various events on, at the White House. In a pandemic, that is allowed because the White House is federal property. And so the local jurisdictional regulations surrounding events during a pandemic don't apply. The Trump Hotel is not on federal property, right? And so in D.C. currently, there's a limit, for example, of 50, 50 people for, for gatherings. There's some different mask requirements for certain businesses, et cetera. So I'm kind of curious to see how that is going to play and sort of how that relates. We're still I'm sort of sharing this with you live as I'm still reporting out these threads um, and have mm-hmm. calls out. And I'm kind of working on this with people. Uh, but that's one of the things that I'm that I'm watching. Um, you know, it's always 
interesting to think about for, for either campaign or either candidate, any election, really, primaries, I think about too, the election night, like the night that the returns start coming in, it's always so fascinating to kind of be around people who support that candidate, whether the energy, how the energy is, what they're watching, watching as the returns come in, you know, the cheers when a state goes their way and the silence when a state doesn't go their way. So those are kind of the things that I think the on the ground reporting will be able to reflect as it always does um, on election night. Although you make a really important point. So many people have voted. Our numbers at NBC yeah. show now that more than half of people who voted in all of 2016, right, the entire electorate, have already actually voted. Um, which are just mind boggling numbers, not shocking in the middle of a pandemic, right? Like that's maybe mm-hmm. what you would think would happen, but it's still been just incredible to kind of see the, 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 the raw energy of that. I think there's also the question of whether or not we're going to actually get the results on right. election night, right. or if the pandemic is going to delay a, a final answer on who wins the 2020 election. And that could be an issue if, you know, Trump declares victory early or contest the results. Um, and he's, you know, he's already said that he doesn't want votes um, counted after November 3rd. Uh, is that something that you're looking out for? So one of the things that I've started to say, you know, on the air on my show and elsewhere, sort of in, in editorial calls with the network too, is talking about, you know, five, six days ago, five days ago, four days ago, before when votes will start to be counted, right? Because, because it's mm. election day and election night, and that's how we traditionally think of it. But this election, election more than ever, it's, we don't know, right? That's when the votes in many instances will start to be counted, the ballots, right? So this could stretch in some states for, for a while. You know, it may not in other states. We just don't know. There's so many question marks about that. What we do know, um, and this I think relates to, your, to the question that you asked about President Trump, is that the president would love nothing more than for there to be a result on election night and for that result to be him winning the election, right? And he's <laughs> so clear about that at his rallies, in his tweets, he's been talking about that, um, trying to, I think, create and sort of early on sow seeds of sort of preemptive confusion, if you will. Um, Worth noting, right, like every, all the time, we don't, there's no, there's no certification of, of, of election results at 11 p.m. on election night, you know what I mean? Like, Ever, have to, yeah. yeah, right. And not this, not this election, any election, you know. <laughs> and so I think that the way that news organizations talk about that, it's important for us as organizations to be transparent about that, and we always are, right? And that's why I think using language like "Hey, votes are starting to be counted," and we can project mm-hmm. this happening, and we always use that kind of language. And this year, I think more than ever, that's super, super critical considering all of these, all of these questions. And important, I imagine, to treat the election as not a one-night event, but potentially oh a days-long, week-long event, which no, I'm sorry to No, <laughs> I got child care lined up for like the month of November, just in case, you Smart. know, because you never know. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's say Trump does lose the election next Tuesday, uh, or however long it takes to see the results. Um, what is, I, I hate to make you sort of uh, predict, but what is your best bet for what Trump does after he leaves office? Have you heard any rumors from inside the White House about what he would do next. Is it, are we gonna have you know rallies for the rest of time? Is he gonna start a Fox News competitor? Do you have any insights onto that? So as you, I think, correctly point out, I'm certainly not a, a, a prediction expert, right? That mm-hmm. is, I, I, I love to look at like actual things that I'm reporting. Here, here's what I can say based on having covered this um, president and previously before that, this this candidate, this citizen for, for years, which is this is a this is somebody who likes to be in the spotlight. And we know that based on his long history of doing that, on his business, you know, his career in business, on his career in politics, and the way that he had sort of dipped in and out of the political world even before he officially started running for president in 2015. So to those, you know, he has he has sort of 
jokingly or sarcastically said on the campaign trail recently that, hey, maybe he'd go move away or like disappear or something. Anybody who thinks that is going to happen or is hoping that is going to happen is going to be sorely disappointed. I just don't see no matter what happening, Donald Trump disappearing from the public discourse. And I think that ties into one of the storylines, you know, if and again, huge if, huge hypothetical, we don't know how this election is going to go. But since you sort of set it up in this scenario, if the president does not win, what that means for the Republican Party, you know, and and yes, Republicanism and conservatism and Trumpism, like how does that play out? And the president, I imagine, will still want to be a presence in that sort of Trumpist populist world that he has sort of put together over the last four years. You know, that might be a different world than the one establishment, quote unquote, Republicans are living in under a potential Democratic president. Right. So I think those to me are going to be the, the really fascinating storylines as somebody who, you know, I myself covered the Republican primary in 2015, 2016, um, and i watching that world and the way that that universe is evolving and has evolved and will continue to evolve is something that I think is going to be a very sort of fruitful reporting journey over the next couple of years, depending on what happens next week. Yeah, you make a great point there that the real question is how what what role does Trump play in the Republican Party right. after he leaves office, whether it's, you know, next uh, in January or four years from now. Right, right. Uh, let's talk about the final debate. Um, it was hosted by your colleague, Kristen Welker. Yes. There was a bit of a controversy before the event. Trump and some uh, Trump-friendly media outlets targeted her and accused her of having some sort of anti-Trump bias. And then the debate happened and her performance was met with rave reviews. What did you make of that whole ordeal? So I will say to you what I said on the air on my show the night, the morning after the night of the debate, um, because, and just as, a, as a, some background to this, I'm not only a close colleague of Welker's who works in obviously our White House unit as well, but she is mm -hmm. a dear friend of mine in Washington and beloved, I think, by every single human who works at NBC and one of the kindest <laughs> people in the world, um, which which is to say that I, I, I would hope, it is my hope and my, my thinking that those who, you know, preemptively attempted to criticize her performance feel embarrassed, I think, because anybody who knows her knows that the criticism is is so absurd as to be as to be laughable if it wasn't so, you know, completely off-putting. Um, and so that's what I'll say about that. She did a phenomenal job. I think she represented NBC so well. I know that Noah Oppenheimer, president, has said publicly that it showed, I think, the world why Kristen is not just one of the most valued you know, members journalistically of our organization, but also just on a personal level with sort of the, the warmth of spirit that she has. So I think that uh, it is an intense and and very, very high profile uh, and high stakes setting. And she performed exactly like we all thought she would, which is, you know, perfectly. Do you think she was phased by that criticism at all? No. <laughs> now, it does seem, I, I do agree, it does seem to me like a little bit of sort of Trumpian ref working. It, it reminded me of that famous comment that he allegedly made to Leslie Stahl back uh, the previous time she had interviewed him, that he attacks the press to discredit them so that they will not be believed when they write negative stories about him. It, do you think that that's been a deliberate strategy of this White House? Well, I think what you have to do is look at, you know, what the president and what his allies have said versus sort of what they've done and how things have turned out. I think some of the best 
exam, you know, examples of that is that it is now like a classic part of the president's stump speech over the last four days, three days or so, that he now praises uh, the final debate moderator from NBC. You know, so I think yep. that, that is significant. I also think, you know, you bring up Leslie Stahl and that interview, the 60 Minutes interview was a fascinating one. Um, because the president was clearly sort of unhappy with the direction that it was going with um, Leslie Stahl starting off the discussion about, you know, saying, hey, I'm going to ask you some tough questions, you know, and saying later in the interview, I thought you liked this kind of sparring. And the president sort of dramatically, I, I don't say dramatically, but the president, despite potentially having more time leaving, I should note his White House has said he gave her a lot of time, which for a president, you know, who's, who's busy, take that for what you will. But, but you then watch the interview and it was just such an interesting juxtaposition of the way that the president portrayed it versus the way that it, the 60 minutes did. Um, one thing that was notable there was the president, of course, releasing the full unedited interview that was shot um, by presumably White House staffers on Facebook, right? Days before that interview was released. And I just think that is an example um, of what you're talking about, the way that the media has become almost central to the president's strategy. Um, and the way that he uses media, and I say that meaning social media, to his advantage um, as much as humanly possible. That was something that he felt did him well and did a service for him in, in 2016. And he's, you know, taken a page from that playbook again. And he always, he's never, she was, he's never, he's never put down that playbook, Aiden, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I think it was telling that in particularly the Leslie Stahl interview that it, it, he was aggressive from the first question. You know, it, it did seem like that was sort of a strategy that he was that he was playing out. It, it wasn't like he got, you know, increasingly, increasingly aggravated over the course of the questioning. It was from the very first question. He was sort of angry at the interviewer. Uh, but just one more question about the, the last debate. I, th I do think one of the things that silenced critics of uh, Kristen Welker and, and actually earned her plaudits from conservative media was that she asked Joe Biden about uh, allegations of corruption in Hunter Biden's business dealings. Now, that's a story that I think the mainstream media has been extremely cautious with uh, and even reluctant to cover, I think in part because of PTSD from 2016, when the media kind of enthusiastically covered uh, every word from the Clinton DNC emails, which we now know were hacked by Russia and laundered through WikiLeaks. What do you think that of of the Hunter Biden story as a news story? Do you, do you think it's the, something that the media should be looking into more? Well, I know that members of the media are investigating it and looking into it. Mm -hmm. um, I think there have been a lot of questions about the provenance of some of the materials and, and our reporting broadly at NBC News inside the organization has been that, you know, intelligence experts suggest that this is the sort of fruits of potentially some sort of foreign disinformation campaign, foreign hack and dump campaign, essentially. And so acknowledging that um, and, and understanding that, I think, is really central to, to that story. And I think that one of the things that we've tried to do is make that extremely clear and evident um, in the way that we talk about that story. I think that you know, Biden has, you know, even prior to this, has had to answer questions or has faced questions about um, his, his family. And I think that you know, you saw that on the debate stage. Um, I do think that putting things into context, into a broader context, is so, so important for viewers and for voters in the run up to an election. It's kind of the, the responsibility that all media organizations have. You made headlines with an interview with uh, Trump campaign press secretary Hogan Gidley last week. You questioned him quite aggressively on uh, the president's false claim that there is widespread voter fraud in the country. And it, it felt like a rare approach, to be honest, to conducting interviews with Trump surrogates because the, the press has been very vocal about how much Trump lies and how much his surrogates can be dishonest. But he and his staff are treated 
still very much the way that their predecessors in the White House were treated. And this interview in which you uh, cut Hogan off and ended the interview early when you refused to answer your question and instead, you know, continued to push some misinformation about voting is obviously a departure from that. What did you make of that interview in, in general and the response to it? So I think a couple of things here. I think that, first of all, I do think, and I'll speak for myself and not for other anchors, but I do think there is certainly pushback when people say things on the show um, and sort of in interviews that are incorrect, right? And I think that's Mm -hmm. broadly borne out. I think that, you know, for that interview specifically, I, um, I had not been intending to have a conversation about things that weren't true about widespread voter fraud, right? Like, which doesn't exist. Like, that was not the point of that discussion. I think too, you know, unfortunately, the conversation devolved into that from some of the things that the, you know, spokesperson from the Trump campaign was saying. And as you know, you, I don't think it's right to let those things go uncorrected, right? To let those kinds of things stand. What sure. we, the original intent of having somebody from the Trump campaign on, and specifically, you know, Hogan Gidley, um, who previously worked inside the White House in the in the press shop, was to get actual information, right? That is the goal that we go into every single time we interview any surrogates from campaigns, right? Like what concrete facts, what actual mm. facts can we get? And we have conversations about surrogates saying, okay, what is the point? Why, why are we having this person on? What information do we want to glean? What I think is lost in some of the coverage, we actually got interesting, we actually got a piece of information out of that interview, which was that the Trump campaign was not briefed about the thing that happened the night before, which was the ODNI and FBI warning about um, you know, Russian and Iran interference in the election, right? Mm-hmm. That had happened, if you remember, the night before. There was an open question whether the Biden or Trump campaign had been briefed. I actually had a member of Congress on my show, that same show, who said they should absolutely be briefed. We learned they had not been briefed, right? That's a small example, but it's like, I think it speaks to the reasoning of why we wanted to get somebody on. Because it's like, hey, we have some yes or no questions. Did, did these things happen or did they not happen? I think when the conversation takes a different turn, it is incumbent, I think, on the people doing the interviews. And I think you see this fairly broadly. To or I shouldn't say that. I, I think you do see this. for them to push back um, if something's not true. And so the conversation ended up getting into this whole thing about, you know, widespread voter fraud and whether it exists, which it does not. And Chris Ray has acknowledged it does not, as he did the night before. The night know. before. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Which like you, you, you have to point out, you know, mm. um, and when really all we wanted was to get some actual factual information about whether the president had had the conversation with his campaign about Chris Ray. Like these are things that are that are gleanable. Right. I'm not asking for like people's opining or whatever. Like it's it's just as a reporter, you want to collect facts. Right. And that's sort of what we had been trying to do. So, yeah, the interview, um, I think, got a lot of pickup, um, which is, you know, it is what it is. I wish it had been, you know, more fruitful in the fact gathering process that we had hoped that it would it would be. And you touch on something there that I find really fascinating about this White House is that very often the statements from the White House, whether it's the president or his sort of uh, spokespeople, very often contradicts the statements of, you know, either his the scientists on the coronavirus task force or Christopher Ray, the FBI director. Is that something that has been like a problem for you as an interviewer when you're when you're speaking to members of the White, either the White House uh, press shop or the campaign? And they're directly contradicting members of the administration that are that are experts working on these very important problems that the country is facing. 
It happens quite a bit. It happens not just with, and that's just a statement of fact as well. Like it happens mm-hmm. not just with election related items, like you saw in the interview that you referenced with, with Mr. Gidley. It happens as we've seen repeatedly with the pandemic as well. One great example, for example, is just this week. Um, the Today Show um, on NBC had one of the members of the Coronavirus Task Force, Admiral Girard, talking about you know the increase in coronavirus cases, the surge in cases that we're seeing across the country. You know, there was a day this week when no states in the country reported a decrease in cases, right? The president has been insisting repeatedly at rallies uh, and in interviews that the reason for the high numbers are because there's, we're doing a lot of testing directly contradicted on the Today Show by a member of his task force who said, no, it's because it's not just testing, it's cases and hospitalizations are going up. That That's why the numbers are going up, because that's what we're seeing on the ground. Um, and I think that that is something, you know, that is important to highlight. For example, that 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 particular contradiction happened to be in the first 30 seconds, you know, we put it in the first 30 seconds of my show, the morning that it happened, because we thought it was critical to point out to folks the sort of reality from the experts who are working on this field versus versus the rhetoric, which we've done, you know, repeatedly on other topics as well, not just the pandemic. Obviously, the it, the pandemic is one of the biggest stories of the year, particularly Trump's yeah, handling yeah. of it. And but I think a really important facet of it is how the press corps has covered the administration's behavior just within the grounds of the White House. I'm thinking back to when there was a coronavirus outbreak that infected everyone from the president on down to 20-something press shop staffers and several White House reporters. And that that I've spoken to uh, people that are in the White House press corps that, that have said that that was a direct result of the White House's attitude towards the virus. Did you feel like the press corps was ever put in danger by the White House throughout this pandemic? I can speak to my own experience being on the White House grounds, um, specifically as these events were happening. So I was there for, for example, that Rose Garden event um, outside when the president nominated Amy Coney Barrett. I traveled to the White House to do, obviously, live shots and to do, you know, to be there for for nightly news and for my sort of job as chief White House correspondent. And what I saw and what I had seen, um, you know, you would go back to the area called Upper Press to talk to officials. This was prior to the president's hospitalization. And I would often be... Um, or if I was up there with a colleague in the press car, the only one in a mask. Um, and I had come back from maternity leave right at the end of August, right in time for the convention. So I hadn't been going to the White House over the summer. Um, and I remember coming back after some of my first couple interactions and I, I called a colleague and I said, what, is this normal? Like, do I, nobody, is it me just in a mask? But that was the standard operating procedure. The White House had said, listen, a lot of them would be getting those those tests and they felt comfortable in that setting, which, you know, um, I will say that after the sort of outbreak happened inside the White House, the president, um, I think by our count, you know, more than obviously 20 people sick, at least 14 of them from that Rose Garden event specifically who tested positive for COVID, including multiple people who came into contact, you know, and worked with members of the press, um, you know, not necessarily close contact, but part of their job is to facilitate, you know, communications with reporters. Um, I personally, you know, I, I will just be very candid with you, Aiden. Like it was very stressful to go into White House grounds. It's also our job to to do that to a degree. But we at NBC really took steps to limit our presence to just just the sole absolute needed number of people. Right? I did a lot from home. Um, we moved some of our operations off of White House grounds. We took some serious precautions related to which we had already been taking cleanliness, mask wearing, etc. Um, you know, I. 
personally avoided trying to go places where I felt uncomfortable, like in enclosed areas. And if I wasn't sure somebody's going to be a mask or not, like whatever, just pick up the phone and call. Um, travel became obviously very different. It used to be, you know, tons of people from the press corps, I think would be at rallies. I think all news organizations have taken a very deliberate step to limit that because of the concern of, you know, what this outbreak did. So, you know, on, on a personal note, I was coming home, you know, I had like a full decay contamination procedure that I would do, right? Like my, I have a newborn, you know, an infant daughter. And so we were, who's by definition already immunocompromised. So we were extremely sort of focused on keeping her very safe, you know, and keeping me very safe, frankly. So I didn't have to isolate her from her for any period of time. Um, but, you know, the decontamination procedure at home, the, the mask wearing, the, um, you know, clothes right in the washer, like all the different precautions that I think you would need to take. COVID tested constantly. Um, I've, I've taken a lot of tests just to kind of make sure that I'm still in a good place. So um, it's just, it was such a surreal experience. I think at the height of that, when the president was sick, when he was in the hospital, when like every couple of hours we were getting more and more names of people who were getting, you know, testing positive. I remember I broke the news that Stephen Miller had tested positive for COVID. Like I think minutes after one of our nightly news broadcasts, you know, standing on the White House North Lawn. And so in in the thick in the heat of that, I think it does become surreal that you are now reporting on the confluence of two of the biggest stories in the world, right? The pandemic and the political campaign. And it was the epicenter truly was at the campus where you're standing doing your reporting. Um, so I think I'm probably still, frankly, like processing some of that. And, and as the travel is picking up and the president we're reporting is expected to do something like 11 rallies in the last 48 hours of his campaign, like I'm on, I've been on planes, you know, I've been in rental cars, I've been doing some of those things and trying to take as many precautions as possible, just like so many of my colleagues who frankly are doing just as much, if not more travel than I am. Is it safe to say that little has changed at the White House in terms of precautions since that outbreak happened? People are wearing more masks. I mean, that's just okay. noticeable. And I think, you know, you're seeing that on- Baby steps. Yeah, well, I think you're seeing that inside the building. Um, I think that the testing is happening. Um, and I think that from a from my perspective, and I won't speak for the entire press corps, I am very conscious of taking those sort of precautions. Like when the weather's nice, we spend most of our day outside, like at our mm -hmm. camera positions rather than in our very small workspace. Um, that's obviously going to get harder as the winter creeps closer. But those are kind of some of the things that we're trying to do. Are, do, you, do you have plans to go to any of the, the last remaining rallies? Um, I, I'd be curious to know if like there's still almost even worth covering in person um, because they, they have gotten, I have to say, a little bit repetitive at this point. Well, I think there's always value in having people at rallies. And I, I would have there, said that yeah. in 2016 as well, you know, when the president was all, uh, by definition, I think towards the end of a campaign, everything's repetitive. Like it's called a stump speech for a reason. Um, sure. I, I, my colleagues, have, some of them who have traveled much more than me, um, you know, because I was on maternity leave and so they were traveling more over, you know, previously. Um, there is, I think, some color and some perspective that you get from being there. I think talking to people who attend the rallies is obviously really important of why they're making the decision to be there um, and sort of having eyes on the ground. I will say for me, you know, I'm also juggling. I still do a show every day at 10 a.m., right? And like from, yep. the, from the home studio. So that makes travel a little trickier for me. One of the things that we've done, for example, is been able to take the show on the road. We did that um, last week for the Nashville debate, the week before for our town hall uh, in Miami, uh, in South Florida. So being able to broadcast from the field for the show and then sort of turn to the, the coverage of like my my day job, as I like to call it, you know, <laughs> as the chief white house correspondent for NBC, um, being able to juggle that, I think, is, is important. It's also going to get just crazily insane and busy 
meaning from a logistical perspective, as we get closer to, to Tuesday, just because there will be a lot of travel for President Trump. You alluded to this at the top of your of your of your broadcast here in your introduction, but Joe Biden has done far less travel. And that has been, you know, an intentional choice by his campaign and in talking with officials on that side of things um, because of the pandemic and the idea that they, you know, feel like it's important to send sort of a message to Americans who are watching some of these things. You wear a lot of hats at NBC. You are the chief White House correspondent. You host the, as you said, the, the Daily Show at, uh, at 10 a.m. MSNBC Live. And you've been in the news business for a while. And uh, this year, it feels like has probably been one of the more insane years in news uh, that we've ever had. It, we had the coronavirus pandemic. There's an economic crisis. There are still protests against racial injustice happening. And now there's a, a pretty crazy presidential election this week. I apologize for asking such a sort of general question, but what has it been like covering the news this year? <laughs> Relentless. You know, it is just, it is relentless. Um, it is, I, 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 the word that comes to mind is, is sort of cliche because high stakes doesn't seem to, to, to cover it, but I think it is, it puts into sort of crystal clear focus the responsibility that journalists have um, and how important that responsibility is uh, at a time of national crises, right? Crises plural, because as you mm. talk about, there have been multiple of them, right? Uh, the, the, the questions that have been seated about the legitimacy of our democratic election process, the global pandemic that is worsening in this country and what some experts consider to be still maybe the first wave, but the third peak of it, the racial reckoning, the just you know, the, the reckoning over, over social injustice in this country that has been happening, you know, for months now and that we're seeing come into relief yet again with the shooting of, of Walter Wallace in Philadelphia. Um, it, it is so important to, you know, at this moment, get the story right, right? And to, and to meet the moment and to constantly be thinking about context and how do you put into context these things that are happening. I have had a very, I think, unusual experience this year because I also happened to like have a baby, right? Two days before the president like went on the Oval Office and, you know, he delivered an address on the pandemic. We walked out of the hospital two days before that happened, the day that Tom Hanks came down with COVID, you know, and the, the NBA shut down its season. So we were having this sort of very surreal experience of our own as a growing family, sort of away from the news business at the same time that this sort of tinderbox was lighting up. Um, as it related to the pandemic in this country. So to come out of that after a few months and to step back into it was for me personally, an incredibly, incredibly intense experience. It's been, you know, I covered, as you know, like I've, I've covered, I covered politics back in 2016. I was on the road for that campaign when we had a huge, you know, Republican primary field. And then Donald Trump obviously ended up, you know, getting the nomination and then the general election versus Hillary Clinton and then the transition. But I think the time period in the last month has been probably one of the most intense of my life, of my professional life, just because um, it's just, it is so important to be crystal clear in what you're talking about. When the president, for example, went into the hospital, I think on, I think it was a Thursday night or a Friday afternoon that we found out, Thursday that he had tested positive for COVID. And then I think Friday he was at the White House and he went to the hospital Friday afternoon. I mean, we were basically on the air at NBC News for like 
I'm exaggerating, but it felt like six days straight. You know what I mean? Like just, and, and it, in, in you're on the literal, you know, front lines of reporting information from your sources and from your contacts back to the entire NBC news platform. You know what I mean? All of our different entities. Um, and it's, it's a huge responsibility. And I think it's one that nobody, none of us, I certainly don't take lightly at all. Um, so, you know, I think for me personally, it's going to take, I think a minute to like get away from 2020 and process what it meant. Cause I, right now we're still in the thick of it, you know? So it's a little hard, I think for me to assess what it means sort of from a historical perspective when we're, I'm still actively and vigorously reporting out, you know, all these different elements of it. Um, but it is, it is sure as hell one for the history books. Well, I do hope that you get a minute to breathe in November. Uh, Hallie Jackson, thanks for joining us. Aiden, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Hallie Jackson on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week for a special podcast in the wake of the November 3rd presidential election.